morning. My name is Sandy Asker, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I am excited to do some money talks. Uh, I also want to praise the Lord today for grace, because as some of you know, I've talked about I'm taking a Christian history class right now, and this weekend I have felt a little stressed. All of you who are students, I feel you. Uh, I have a paper due tonight, but in the Lord in his graciousness, my paper is on wealth and money. And so my preparation for today and for the series coming up and literally the book that I had to read. Doesn't this look fun, everyone? Wealth and Poverty in Early Christianity. So I am grateful for the ways that things overlap because it makes my life a little bit easier. Uh, 200, the year 200, people were asking the question, can Christians be wealthy? And it's still relevant because, surprise, I believe some of you have probably had similar questions. The Bible challenges us on how we can be faithful with the possessions that we have. And maybe you've heard this pesky little statement from Jesus that says, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, we are going to do some money talks this month. We're going to have three weeks. And Crossview, we have this statement that you just saw on the screen. Because God gave to us, we then give sacrificially, consistently, and generously. So today, I'm not going to answer the question, can Christians be rich? Because we have to decide what rich really means. And there are so many rabbit trails we could go down on that road. But we are going to talk about giving and why it is important that we would do it and do it consistently. Think about the word consistency, faithful, dependable. When I have people that I'm getting up early in the morning and I'm going to meet, there some, meet them somewhere for a run, I like to go to places where I've been before and I like to go with the same people. I like to find my favorite cheese at the store where I found it the last time I was there where I found my favorite cheese. I like a comfortable pair of pants. They are what I expect. They're comfortable. They're dependable. They're right where I know they're going to be. And maybe this fall, you are experiencing some of the same things. The traditions that come with fall. Man, some of you guys are really excited about this cold weather. I was happier a week ago when I jumped in the lake. Uh, but we love the pumpkins and picking apples at the orchard. We love sweater weather. I saw a lot of sweaters this morning. Anyone? Yes, yeah, sweater weather. Sorry, that was the Boston accent. It's a Saturday Night Live skit for those of you that haven't seen that before. Sweater weather. And then the great debate in our country when it's not an election year, when is it too early to have pumpkin spice? At this point, it's not too early. But, you know, people wanted to get into it, I think, in August. We like the seasons. We know what to expect. We have traditions. Fall, I think, is one of the times where we have many of those traditions. We see it as faithfulness, and it's really a grace in a world where there's so much chaos, so many things we don't know. We know absolutely that the fall colors are coming, and at some point, pumpkin spice is going to be all right. We can depend on it, and it really has its roots in God. God is the one who's faithful. God is the one who predicts and has the seasons. God is the one who makes sure that that sun, no matter what, even if it's cloudy and raining, we can't see it. We know that that sun has come up. We can depend on God. 
Now, we're going to go way back in our faith history, looking at Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. If you have a phone that doubles as a computer, you can pull that out. Or if you have a real Bible, open up to Deuteronomy 26. We're going to look at how the people in Israel set up consistent reminders for them to respond to God's goodness. So starting in verse 1. When you have entered the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God has given you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. And say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. So these are commands written before Israel had actually entered the promised land. So they had this as a plan before they even received God's promise. They knew without a doubt that God was going to fulfill those promises. And they had a plan for once they got there, how then to respond to the goodness that they had not yet received. That is how dependable God is. They were making laws and rules and festivals and plans before they even had received what they were going to need to celebrate those festivals. God is so good. It had become and would become a steady yearly tradition. So there's this phrase, first fruits, in verse 2. First fruits is something, unless you're a farmer or a gardener or someone who grows things, maybe it doesn't make sense to you. And I have to say, a year ago, it wouldn't have made sense to me. But this year, we really had some first fruits at our house. We've always had this very sad apple tree in our front yard, and it's sort of the Charlie Brown Christmas tree all year round. And right now, it has apples on it. I should have taken a picture. But you know how an apple tree is, right? Well, now the apple tree is like this. Because it can't even, like, support, as Calissa says, it can't even support its own victories. Like, it's so, like, just whatever. But the first apple that we took off of the tree, or if you have a garden like we do, that first tomato that you pick, it might not be the biggest, it might not even be the best, but there's something about that first fruit. That is what we're talking about here. For farmers, it was likely things like fruits, vegetables, but it was also wheat, and there's something about that first one. If I had picked the apple and the tomatoes and eat them and had eaten them when the kids were at school, I probably would have gotten in trouble. But it's something that the whole family enjoyed. It is special. And if you're a farmer and you are growing that food, it's not just like for the askers, it's something sort of fun and extra. If you are growing that to be your crop, it is part of your sustenance. It is going to meet the hunger needs of you and your household. So what they would do is they would take the first, trusting that there would be more to come and enough for them later, but they would take that first fruit and they would bring it to the priest. There was a trust in God in providing for them. They did this every spring. Now the time of the year is interesting. I didn't know that before I studied this. This festival, this tradition comes right on the heels of the Super Bowl of Jewish traditions. The Super Bowl of Jewish traditions, as we know it, is called Passover. We now celebrate Easter during it. But Passover was a seven-day span of time when Israel remembered that God did the crazy things, like the crazy plagues, and then parting a sea and letting them escape slavery. 
it was this time of celebration that really was the pinnacle of the Jewish calendar. And then right after that, they went out to their fields, they saw what was first there, and they came and they worshipped the Lord. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 26. Once they brought their first fruits, it says, The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. It was worship. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Armean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to hard labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the Lord God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. God brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. So again, they had just had this festival where they reminded one another, where they retold the story, not just for them, but for the next generation, for the children yet who had not yet understood or fully grasped the decades of suffering and enslavement. The horrible conditions that they had lived in. They had thrived and numerically, man, I mean, their population exploded and yet they were miserable. And so Passover reminded them of the time of how God rescued them out of it. And as they brought these first fruits, they told an abbreviated story of that. It was part of this tradition. It was part of how they remembered God's faithfulness and consistent power towards them. Israel had been beaten down, enslaved. Many of them had died under those conditions. Unfortunately, after they got out of Egypt, they wandered in the desert for a while because they wouldn't listen to God. And then they finally came to rest in the promised land. Now, in Deuteronomy 26, this hasn't happened yet for them. But it's pointing again to the time when they would. They had settled in this land after years of not having their own land or, frankly, even a place they would regularly live. They had no address. So finally, they are in this place. And frankly, it could have been awful and ugly, and they probably would have been happy. But God didn't do it like that. God gave them an amazing land. And there's this phrase, a land flowing with milk and honey. And I don't know, like, I don't know if I asked a 12-year-old in the audience, like, do you know what that means? Have you ever heard that phrase, a land flowing with milk and honey? Some of us have heard that before. Sometimes the early Europeans would call the United States that. And basically what it means is think about like fertile ground, grass, uh, the water's clean, there are fruit, fruit trees. Uh, it is able to produce so that it can provide for a large number of people. A land flowing with milk and honey. It's interesting as I studied this and the honey piece, it points to flowers. <clears throat> you can't have bees without flowers. And in our day, we know that the honeybees and the bees, they're actually in trouble because of certain ways that we have not cared for the earth. And I think it's fascinating. And in this passage, it literally talks about honey. 
and how that points to God's faithfulness and goodness, but it also points to the health of a land. These people were going to be and were incredibly thankful. After living under slavery and oppression and toil and misery, they come to a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 11 says, Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all of the good things the Lord your God has given you and your household. So this was an act of worship. In response to God's faithfulness, they were coming and bringing their firsts. It was not, however, just a way of worship. It was a means of providing for others. So a little Old Testament history, confirmation students, listen up because this might help you in the future. The Levites. The Levites were one of the tribes of Israel. And when the Israelites came into the promised land, there were 12 tribes, and all of them got like parts of the land. So you got this land over here if you were part of this tribe, and you were this over here. But the Levites, guess what? They didn't get any land. They did, however, get the responsibility and the privilege of taking care of the place of worship. But they did not have land. And back then, land meant food. If you don't have any land, you are not able to provide for yourself. So part of them bringing their first fruits, imagine if all of us and the family units represented at Rosa Parks, if we all brought part of our first fruits, assuming we all had gardens and crops, it could provide for the Levites, which who would be the askers, okay? If y'all brought a little bit together, it could be enough for us. And that is what happened when they brought their first fruits. Now, not just their first fruits, because we can all imagine, well, that might not be great because my first tomatoes are kind of tiny. But throughout the year, there were other traditions and places and ways consistently for the people to bring things to the temple to provide for, just the, for the Levites. Now, that's great, right? And it makes sense. And even those of us in church, you understand that when you give, right, we get paid. We get a salary out of that, right? This is not a surprise to anyone, okay? So it's based off of what happened back in the Old Testament. However, it doesn't stop there. It says the Levites are going to rejoice in the good things the Lord gave you because we get part of it. Thank you very much, Lord. And it says the foreigners. Now, if you're a foreigner, how are you in the promised land? Well, let me tell you, in my, like, I don't know, whatever creative mind, I imagine when they came out of Israel, I'm sorry, when they came out of Egypt, there were other people who had experienced God. They had seen the miracles. They had seen the plagues. They didn't want any part of that. They wanted part of God and part of God's goodness. And so they joined in the caravan that got out. Perhaps when they were wandering in the desert, they picked up two or three or four foreigners, and they came to be part of the people who settled in the promised land. Somehow, I don't know how, but they were there because it says they were. The point is foreigners also did not inherit the land. Only the tribes of Israel. Well, what do you do then? You have no land, you have no food. Well, guess what? There's a plan. God will consistently provide. This was a habit they had every year. There are more that we could study in the Bible, but at least we can see in Deuteronomy 26, 
there is this system, this cycle that God has provided. Every year, they're going to plant. Every year, they're going to bring first fruits. Every year, the Levites and the foreigners among them are going to enjoy. Now, it doesn't say that they gave them to the Levites and the foreigners. We can infer, however, why would they be rejoicing and how great your crops were unless they got part of them? Would they be like, oh, good for you, and then go over here and be hungry? That doesn't make sense to me. So I'm just inferring from verse 11 that they received them. God intends, I believe, when he blesses all across the board, for those who are not able to provide for themselves, part of that blessing can spill out for those who are in need. Over and over again in the passage, we see how it is a response to what God has given them. They do not see it as their own. They see it as a response to the one who gave them those things in the first place. So back to that verse. It's easier for a camel to enter the eye of the needle. It's a really big needle or a very tiny camel. Or it seems impossible, doesn't it? And what's funny is Jesus just doesn't say once it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. He actually says it twice in that passage in Mark 10. The disciples, by the second time, go, okay, who then can be saved? Now, what's interesting is it is in the same section of scripture that also says, for you to enter the kingdom, you must become like a little child. Okay, so I can't be rich and I have to be a little kid. Well, I am not a little child. And according to the world standards, I am quite wealthy. So it sounds like I am in trouble. However, immediately in this section, Jesus says, nothing is impossible with God. Now we might read this story in Deuteronomy 26 and say like, oh, that seems really nice, but how is that possible? With God, all things are possible. Perhaps you think about this and you think, oh boy, we're going to be talking about finances for the next three weeks. I really don't want to talk about this. Or maybe you're like, oh, this is exactly what I've been feeling convicted on and I can't wait. Let's talk about it. Either way, It is possible with God to have habits, consistent habits, where we can even take our best and our greatest or even a greater portion than we think is possible in response to God's goodness. What's interesting is I've been telling you about my little Christian history class. Augustine, one of the like ridiculously great minds in our history, and he lived 15, however, 1800 years ago. When he writes, I'm always amazed at how I feel like if we were just to like modernize some of the language, man, it's exactly what we're talking about today. One of the things Augustine talks about is when we receive from the Lord, he calls it a loan. Whatever we have from God, it's on loan. Something about that really resonates with me. If it is then alone, it is, it seems like then, I don't deserve it. Maybe I have to pay it back, maybe I don't. When it's from God, he probably doesn't charge interest, right? But it, it signifies that it is not mine. It is not mine. So, number one, thinking about applying from, gen, from Deuteronomy 26. Maybe you're in that first place 
where you're thinking, I don't know that I really believe that it's God's. I worked pretty hard for this stuff. Or maybe you do have a rational like, oh yeah, I know, but you haven't really implemented that or it hasn't gotten into your soul. Maybe that's your first step today. Secondly, do you have a habit of giving consistently? I think about what it would have been like for the Jews. They've just had this amazing Super Bowl experience of Passover, and then it's harvest time, and they all go out to their fields. You know, and maybe I'm over here, and I'm like waving at Matt, you know, and I'm like, oh, what do you have? Oh, yeah, that one looks good. Or you, you bump into each other on the way to, to the place of worship, and you've got your baskets, and I'm like, ooh, I really like that basket, you know, that one, or whatever. I don't know, but they're doing this together. It's not just individuals responding to God. They are doing it corporately. So yes, you individually have your habits of giving, but how are we as Crossview? How can we create certain habits? One of the things that I am in charge of, so I get to create it as a habit, is for Connection Shelter, I try to get in there right away before maybe the residents are tired of all of the meals. (laughs) I like doing it every October. It's sort of the time of the year it's easier to make soups and chilies and whatnot. And so for two weeks, I'm just praying that God is going to raise us, some of us, and the other location to provide meals for those who don't have land. They're literally, they have no home. And we can, we get to provide for them. Maybe that's your first step. When you think about your giving, uh, we were talking to Pastor Brad, and he does their budget on a spreadsheet. And he, for however many years, he just always puts giving at the top of the list. That's his first fruits. I was also thinking about uh, last month, Brian and I got a tax rebate. Anybody got another check in the mail last week, last month? And they were, we, yeah, and we were like, okay, I guess we have more. And so, you know, you put it in the bank, right? And then we were invited to something this week. And I said to Brian, I was like, you know what? We never gave away any of that gift. When you get extra gifts that are unplanned, unbudgeted, what's your first thought? That first fruits. What is our first thought? So Brian already talked earlier today about how to actually give. I mean, the internet, smartphones, it makes it so easy, you guys. <clears throat> I remember having to write a check and remembering. Oh, shoot, it's the fifth of the month. I've forgotten to write my check to church or whatever. Um, Sometimes I would encourage you maybe to make it a consistent habit to actually engage your body. Do the writing of the check. Put it in the basket because there's something that's a little bit more like conscious and embodied about that. However, maybe that's like, no, I won't remember. Okay, fine, do it online. But what are the ways that you can have those habits? Why does it matter? Why does it matter that we are consistent? Does God really care? You know, if you come to church once or if you're here every week, does God really care if you give like once a year or every week? I don't know. But this is what I do know. Our habits form us or they don't. <laughs> People who have certain habits, that's, what, that's how their character is formed. If you eat breakfast every day, you're going to eat breakfast every day. And your body and your life is going to be different because of that. If you have a habit of being able to sit down and be restful, you're going to be able to more easily do that. Do you know what I mean? It matters because it forms us. So what would it look like 
if we at Rosa Parks, first off, acknowledge that all that we have is the Lord's. It is on loan. That chair you're sitting on, the cameras that cost more money than that chair that you're sitting on, our people, you are all on loan to us from God. And how then do we treat that loan, that gift? What does it look like for our finances to treat it as a loan, a gift from God? How would it look for us as a church if we as a church decided to get more consistent with our giving? Now, this gets hard because you're, I mean, right? I get paid through your giving, so that's a little weird. So I'm going to talk about things that don't have to do with staff, although staffing is part of it. What would it look like if we had the finances so that every confirmad gets to go to confirmation retreat for free? Wouldn't that be great? Do you know what? You give enough so that we're actually doing that in a few weeks. The confirmation students do not have to pay for their retreat that they get to go to on a few weeks. I know. Whoopee. Well, what would it look like if we continue to grow in our giving? What other things like that? What missions experiences can our kids get? How about our local ministry partners that are nonprofits? Man, we've got Young Life, we've got Navigators, we've got InterVarsity, we've got crew staff, people who are pouring into students. A lot of these nonprofits, y'all, they're raising their own budget. Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Campus Ministries. Man, what would it look like if we consistently gave so that their energy could be poured into what they do best, which is reaching students? How would Mankato change? How would the Connection Shelter be different because of our consistent giving? How would Mankato benefit and rejoice, just like it said in that verse 11? Rejoice in the goodness of God. The Levites and the foreigners among them rejoiced because in the goodness of God. Let's pray. God, your word says that nothing is impossible with you. Help us to remember, God, that you're the good giver. Every good and perfect gift comes down from you, the Father of lights. Help us to remember that you are good and that this doesn't have to be shame. This doesn't have to be guilt. This can be us cleanly, cleanly, clearly responding just to your goodness, God. Would you convict us as we need to be convicted? Would you encourage us as we need to be encouraged? God, would your word remind us that this has been a tradition of people of faith for hundreds and thousands of years, God, that we get to join in and be a part of it. And Lord, through Jesus, we can have freedom, even in the area of finances, which so easily entwine, entwine, uh, enslave us. God, give us the freedom that you have given and offered through Jesus, even, Lord, in our finances. And I pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.